Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is with Trevor Immelman. He is a former Masters winner, a former PGA Tour winner, European Tour winner, Sunshine Tour winner. He is the upcoming President's Cup captain, uh, as well as a uh, great commentator on TV. So the all-world talented uh, Trevor Immelman joins. We talk about a lot of stuff, you know, current landscape of golf, the President's Cup upcoming, uh, as well as we get into some Sunshine Tour stories from way back in the day and growing up in South Africa with Ernie Els in the generation ahead of you. So this was a really fun podcast. We did not touch on the Masters. Uh, that might be in a future episode on here or the Shotgun Start. But thank you so much to Trevor for the time and these stories. Without further ado, here is Trevor Immelman. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Hey, uh, you were you were at your son's regional this week. How how'd it go? He struggled a little. Um, he ended up shooting eighty one. He uh, he was four over after twelve and just finished in a stretcher. The poor guy had a couple back to back doubles, and um, so it was a tough finish for him. But it was a cool experience uh, for him to go out there. Then we, their team made it all the way to the state championship last year. And he competes quite a bit, so the competition is not something that's going to scare him off. Uh, but yeah, just just got to keep trying to find a way to get better, man. Yeah, that's. Uh, is it harder to to play, watch your kid, or like caddy? I, I assume you caddied for your brother at some point in your life. It, what's hard? What's the hardest form of golf? Is it watching your kid caddying for somebody that you care about, or or uh, playing your own ball? It's playing your own ball by far. <laughs> it's not, I mean, for me, that's not even close. I mean, there's so much, there's so much kind of nervousness, uncertainty, anxiety, like the range of emotions when you are playing, and particularly when you're playing for a living, can be seriously intense. Uh, when you're caddying, look, it's, it's a bit more of an X's and O's, and it's up to somebody else to have to, to pull it off. And then watching my son, interestingly enough, I'm, I'm kind of unemotional about it. And partly I think because I understand how tough the sport is and how few people make it to the highest level that it doesn't really wind me up so much. Whereas I watch other parents. Yeah. And like you can see when you're at these junior tournaments that they really believe their kid is going to make it to the tour. And I'm just like, woof, you just got to just take it easy. There's so so few that actually make it there. It's great to have that dream, but don't pile too much pressure on them just yet. You know, let them evolve and learn. And most importantly, they have to want it and love it because it's so tough that if you don't want it and love it as the, as the player, as soon as that adversity comes, it's going to kick you in the mouth and you, you're probably going to bail out. That's the interesting thing about golf is like, kids develop so much differently across the board and, and improvement isn't necessarily linear 
as it is like in other sports and, and just trying harder and training harder mm. doesn't always make you just better. Absolutely. That's so accurate. 100%. And that's actually one of the, let's call it pitfalls or holes that I fell into is you think you found an issue or a weakness that you can improve on and you just start investing time and investing time. And if you're, if you're not working on exactly the right thing, it can actually cost you as well as the fact that then you bring injuries into play because now you're just out there beating balls endlessly. And there's no doubt that that can wear on your body over the course of a period of time as well, you know, a number of years. And so, yeah, that, that's one of the real tricky aspects of golf. And every now, every now and then you, you run into somebody like a DJ uh, that like they just really get it. Louis Oersteisen is another one. Uh, they have a very keen understanding of how much they need to practice in order to just keep things firing. I mean, D- DJ knows that he really actually doesn't have to get better. He just has to keep staying at this level right here. You know, how do you find a way to maintain this level and keep it going for a decade or more, which he's already done, but let's call it another decade. They'll put him into his mid to late 40s. He just doesn't need to get that much better. He just needs to keep playing the way he plays. That's the thing. It's hard to get that, though, because the be- I think the beauty of golf is that everybody, no matter how good you are, I mean, you want a master's. And you feel like you have to get better. And deep deep down, there are days that you probably think you stink. And this is what I say to people all the time, is that's what the brilliance. Like, if, if a 20 handicap says to me, oh, I stink, I say, I stink too. You know, <laughs> everybody stinks in their own mind at some point. But the, you know, the reality, is, I, I mean, you get to the top 10, top 15, top 20 player in the world, really everybody thinks you have to get better. I have to get better. I have to get better. And, and I mean, we've seen so many great players try and get better and get worse, but the reality is what you just said is like, you kind of just have to keep going the way you're going. 100%. I mean, think about if, you know, Tiger, we had to mold Tiger in 2000 and kept him like that for 20 years or mold McElroy in, you know, 2012, 2013, 2014, or Spieth in 2015, you know, who knows what those guys would have done. But that's where golf is, man, it's, it's like I always see it, see it as it's like a giant pizza. And if you want to be a great player, you've got to be able to have so many different pieces to fit this thing together. You know, it's 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 power. It's long game. It's being able to have a shot that you own under pressure. It's short game. It's bunker play. It's putting. It's and then you start transitioning to uh, the mental side of it and course strategy and not being not choking under pressure. Uh, being able to believe in yourself. So many intangibles that are just like cliche airy fairy words you throw out there but all of this is part of the puzzle that you have to shape together and it's extremely difficult to do because you don't have teammates to rely on and so it makes it quite tricky because it's just you uh and that's why i've always said whether it be you know in a saying like this or on tv for, for players to have great longevity at a high level in this sport man it's to me, that is just so mega impressive. 
in doing on on my other podcast, the Shotgun Start, doing these like big player uh, deep dives of of yesteryear, that was something that kind of like became very clear was that it's extraordinarily rare for players to have like primes that lasted more than ten years. Like almost every great player, you can look at and be like, well, this is the ten years. But then there's a few outliers. Like Phil would be an outlier, but. For the most part, even Tiger, there's 10 years. It's almost 10 years on the dot, 98, 97 to 2007. You know, Faldo's 10 years. Like, almost everything happened in that 10-year span. And I, I just wonder what it is about 10 years. There's like, it's almost like a cliff. Yeah, I hear you. But, you know, when you, when you go to Tiger, he won his first major in 97, and then he won again in 2019. That's that's a lot longer than ten years at the highest but level. I'm right saying there. where you clear peak dominance, you know. Sure. sure. Phil Phil is definitely an anomaly. You got guys like Furick that have kept it at the highest level for a long time. Davis Love did it for a long time. Freddie Couples. Now maybe not winning at the same clip as a guy like Tiger and Phil, but still just to be in the conversation in the top 10, 15 in the world for for more than a decade. Is, is so incredible. You have, to, you have to have so many things go your way and have the right recipe to be able to keep hanging in there. And then over and above that, you know, the personal side, you have to keep all of that ticking along because all of us, as we get older, we get married, you start having kids, you start changing your life. Maybe things change a little bit for you. Everybody reacts differently to that. Uh, there could be other personal issues that you're struggling with. There could be family tragedy. Uh, there could be injuries. You know, there's just a whole host of things that could happen to to slow somebody down. The kid thing, I imagine, is hard. You had a kid right in the middle of your playing career. What what dimension did that add? I feel like it it, it swings a lot of different ways for a lot of different people. What was your personal uh, experience with that? Well, it was an amazing moment. Actually, my son was born. Uh, it was the Open, right? Two week, well, two weeks after I won at the Western Open, and we are we were at the Open, and I was obviously feeling pretty good. I just beat Tiger at Cog Hill, and was starting to feel comfortable at the highest level uh, in my mid twenties, and I was out playing a practice round with Jeff Ogilvy and Adam Scott at uh, Royal Liverpool is where we were. And we get to the 18th hole. It's like a dog leg to the right. We hit our second shots. And next thing, my mother has walked out onto the green. And Adam is like, man, what is your mother doing on the green? And I'm like, ah, this is very unusual. Like my parents are pretty low key. They, you know, try and stay out to the side and not, not get too involved in anything. And I was like, I have no idea. Anyway, we get up there and she says to me, yeah, Carmenita's just gone into labor. I was like, what? And uh, so called her immediately and uh, that was it. Flew back home. Didn't play that year's Open in 2006. Tiger went on to win with hitting one driver. Remember, that's the famous one where we only hit one driver. I always say to my son, jokingly, I always say to him, yeah, you cost me the British Open. I was playing the best golf of my life. And now, now that he's uh, such an avid golfer and loves the game so much, he gets a real good chuckle out of that. So it's kind of a joke that we have together. Uh, but yeah, 2006, 2010 were when, when my kids were born. And 
for me, it was absolutely something I had to get used to from a standpoint of in order for me to play my best, I had to be extremely selfish mm-hmm. and single-minded and maybe even downright nasty at times. Uh, and that was, I got, I got to be honest with you, it was a little harder to do once I had, once I had kids. Uh, my wife and I, our high school sweetheart, started date, dating in high school. And so she knew exactly uh, what made me tick and what I needed to do to play well. And so she was an amazing asset for me in my career, uh, particularly in the early part, because it didn't bother her when I would, you know, kind of go off into a, into a hole and do my own thing for a little while. She just understood that that, that was what made me play my best golf. Uh, but I would say for sure it was a little harder to do once once I had kids be that person. Well, that's I think that's one of the things I've thought about a lot as, since I had my kid is just how um, how golf such a it's a very selfish game if you want to play golf at a high level, and mm-hmm. then the the whole you know kind of the whole part of parenthood is being selfless, you know. So exactly. it's kind of a a, a, a strife there. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. You, you know, it's an interesting one because every, every athlete that gets to a, a, a high level, they understand what their edge is and, and what makes them good or great or special or whatever the word is. And, you know, that's, that's one of the beauties of, of why we love sport too, because you can kind of pick a side as a fan, you know, you're, you're either a Hogan guy who is extremely stoic and calm and, and, uh, didn't show much emotion. And then you've got a Trevino guy on the other side that was completely opposite and talking to all the fans. And, um, and so that's, that's just one of the beauties of it is you, is you can, as a fan, you can pick the side, pick, pick which kind of person you, you want to support. Uh, but as the athlete, it's extremely important to find what that edge is for you so that you can live there. Because there's no doubt if, if going back to what we were talking about earlier, if you want to have longevity and you want to be great for a long time, you, you have to be authentic. You, you have to be yourself. Otherwise, you're going to get caught out. The, 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 the level of competition is just far too high. I mean, I think that's great advice. Being authentic, being yourself, to do, be at a high level in almost anything in life. Mm-hmm. Because that's that's what's going to make you unique and different from everybody else. Otherwise, you, if you're just trying to be somebody else, you're not. It's not going to work. Exactly. Speaking of, you know, one of the most impressive things I, is going onto your Wikipedia page and looking at the runner-up at every event that you won. And I, I think that your first win in 2000 on the Sunshine Tour, you beat out Ernie Els, who yeah. obviously you you know South African. Growing up, I imagine Ernie was a little bit older than you, so he kind of was at what everybody was looking up to. And you win uh, in 2000, your first event on the Sunshine Tour. Oh, you beat him out. Tell me about that event. Yeah, that, um, that was a huge moment for me, really, because I turned pro in the summer of 99. And so you've been one of the top amateurs, but you never quite know how it's going to work out. and. Yeah, I was off to a rough start, really. I got to uh, missed out at the second stage of the PGA Tour School. I got to the finals of the European Tour School. So I went there, uh, but didn't get my card. I got my card on the Challenge Tour. 
which is the Europe the secondary tour there in Europe. And uh, so still trying to figure it out, really. And, you know, 2000, that was right in Ernie's prime. Well, he's had such a, an amazing long career, but in, in that time was playing some amazing golf. Uh, and the that week was the before, year that was the year he had the three runner-ups. That's right. That's right. The week before, he actually set the scoring record at the Ned Bank Challenge. He shot like 26 under and, and came in there uh, playing great. Maybe, maybe he had too, too much of a party on the Sunday night. I'll have to ask him about that. But, uh, yeah, we played in the final group uh, Saturday and Sunday. And for me, look, he's 10 years older than me. And just to try and explain to people, you know, Ernie else is, he's our Tiger Woods yeah. in South Africa. Like he is, he's just so well-known, so popular. Everybody loves him. You know, when you play in South Africa and he's at the tournament, it changes everything. If you get drawn with him, there's just people all over the place. I mean, he is just such a famous and popular athlete down in South Africa. And so there I am, I'm 20 years old, I'm going up against him and uh, kind of hanging there the whole week, windy conditions. I remember, I remember it quite clearly, very windy at a course called Royal Cape and ended up winning by three, I think. And that was, for me, a huge moment because I, I kind of proved to myself like, okay, this guy's legitimately probably the second best player in the world but behind Tiger Woods. And you've just found a way to hang in there playing with him for the last two days. So maybe I did do the right thing. Not, not going to, not going to college and turning pro out of high school. <laughs> That's uh, I, it had to be so cool. I mean, I, I imagine that the local press in South Africa, not local, the country's press ate it up too. 20 year old kid out dueling Ernie Ellis on, on the weekend. Yeah. Look, uh, it was, it was a big story because like I said, he's so well known. But in, in South Africa, because I had played so well as a junior, as an amateur, people who followed golf had heard of me down there before. So it was two people that were known in the sport, but absolutely a huge shock, um, a huge upset, so to speak, to be able to, to beat a guy when he's in his prime and he really, really is playing some brilliant golf. What what was the Sunshine Tour like uh, then in like the early 2000s versus, you know, kind of what it is today? It was kind of similar. It uh, We probably had a few more bigger name players that would go down and play there. Look, when I was growing up in South Africa uh, in the late 80s, it used to be a great place to be a fan of golf. You know, we would get so many... Um, young up-and-coming players come and play the Sunshine Tour. A lot of times we would have them staying with us um, at our house because these guys were just out of college and university and they were trying to find their way, some of them not quite on the PGA Tour yet. And so for me to be able to go and watch golf and see all of these uh, young pros uh, start to find their way was an opportunity for me to learn so much. And then my access to the best players in the world was going to, to the Ned Bank Challenge. We used to call it the million dollar back then. I think that might have been the only tournament back then where the winner got a million bucks. Everybody went to that. Uh, yeah. And so I would go up there for the week and I'd be able to see players like Corey Pavin or Furyk 
or Darren Clarks or Ernie's. I guys feel like, like Couples won that a few times too, right? Couples, that was a, couples that was a went big down there. We saw a lot of the European players, Sandy Lyle, Woosnam, Daly went down there a lot. And so that was my opportunity as like a kid who's between the ages of, let's say, 10 and 16 to really see how the best play golf. So those are all the things that, you know, you go up there and you just watch, 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 and you're banking all of this information. And, and then you get to go home and, tr- and try it out and be like, man, I, I saw them hit this shot. I saw them hit this bunker shot. This is how they did that. And um, I was just always really fortunate to be able to have some kind of access to these players, be able to speak to them for a few minutes, maybe ask a question or two. And it, it lit such a massive fire in my belly to, to want to be a great player and want to play here in the U.S. And so that was really the thing that spurred me on. And then because of the time change, we would get all the PGA Tour events and the majors, um, you know, between like, let's call it 10 p.m. and 2, 3 in the morning. And then I would stay up and watch all of that. Uh, so that, that, was, that was my thing. It's interesting to hear you say talk about how important it was to be able to go see the great players. And, and I wanted to save this for a little bit later, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the President's Cup. And it seems to me, as just somebody that, that follows the game, that from a top-to-bottom standpoint, you guys had a ton of very high-end talent for a number of years, whether it's Ernie or Adam Scott or VJ. But it seems like top-to-bottom, you're, you're more talented than you've ever been. And I'm wondering... You know, with the tour and all the, you know, the globalization of golf is particularly in Asia. If that's if you think the best players in Europe going there regularly has had a big impact on 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 talent development in those parts of the country. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And, you know, a lot of a lot of thanks, I think, also goes to to players like Ernie else who would always find time and ways to be able to get over there and play in the biggest tournaments, go down to Australia, go and play in Asia. Uh, Tiger Woods did the same. Didn't see as much as Phil Mickelson. He would stay stateside a bit more. But those are the players that really, you know, the, the, the global players, let's call it. Mm-hmm. Faldos, Norman back in the day. Uh, you know, those are the guys that really went out there and, and, and traveled to all corners of the globe, made sure that everybody got a little piece of it. There's no doubt that those are the kinds of things. Gary plays the original, right? But there's no, there's no doubt that those kinds of things is what spurs growth. In my mind, if you want anything to be sustainable, you have to start it from the grassroots level. You know, those are the kinds of things that can, can get things going, allow kids like the situation I explained with myself to be able to watch the best. And then you get some kind of businessman or a bunch of business people, corporations to jump in and start to invest. That's to me when I think magic can happen. We're starting to see it in South Africa now. Uh, we have a very prominent businessman down there by the name of Johan Rupert. And probably 15 years ago, he started the South African Golf Development Board and he hired a couple of high-level coaches and just started gave these guys an opportunity to spot talent all over South Africa. And then once you've spotted talent, allow them the opportunity to compete and get good coaching and get uh, proper gear and equipment. And we're starting to see the fruits of that now. 
with all of these youngsters that are coming out of South Africa. The Australians have had that for the longest period as well uh, with all their different sports science institutes and golf federation down there. You've got to be able to start it at the grassroots and, and then allow these players to develop and then move through. The only tricky part for us, uh, just, you know, we're kind of switching, switching back and forth here, getting back to the international team. And I actually said this on the broadcast when Sanjay won at Shriners a few weeks ago. The, the tricky part for us as international players is you've got to be able to get used to traveling all the way to the U.S. and getting out of your comfort zone and trying to become world number one, nowhere near anything or the culture that, that you grew up in. And so that is the tricky part that, that players need to try and manage if they want to stay over here for the longest period of time and, and have longevity. You know, a lot of players we see with the European guys, they go back and forth. The South Africans go back and forth. The Aussies go back and forth. Um, and at the end of your career, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff can catch up with you. So, so that's the tricky part is trying to manage that for the international guys. Would, would uh, Garrett Higo be a, a example of one of those young players that came up through the South African system? Yeah, absolutely. Higo Ninabo is another one. He's the guy that, that hits it so far. Um, and there's a bunch of other juniors that are coming through. There's, there's a lot of talent being spotted and developed very well down there right now. So I, I anticipate, look, the tricky part is always finance because you look at these, some of these countries' economies, like South Africa, for instance, um, with the exchange rate and with uh, not all of these players have the ability to be able to get out of South Africa and compete against the other top uh, juniors and players around the world. So you try and match all of that together and be able to give these kids the right support to where they can go out there and start to really realize, man, I actually... I am special. I do have what it takes. I can compete with the best in the U.S. or at the British Amateur or the British Boys or stuff like that. And and then that just gives them that extra motivation to keep going, keep doing what they're doing. With the uh, President's Cup, obviously, the Ryder Cup, you got U.S. and Europe and, and you've got one continent, effectively, of, of players for Europe. And, you know, generally they grew up on the European Tour or the PGA Tour, right? And you guys, historically, whether it was when you were playing or when you're now in a captain role, you have players from three or four different continents, the three different continents, right? I'm not very good at this stuff, but uh, geography. But the uh, you have players from three or four different continents. You have different languages. Like, How much is that a, a challenge, and has it become something that's become easier over the last few years? Um or you know, is is there is that a real challenge for for Presidents Cup, uh, the international team? Yeah, it sure is. I would say it's our it's our biggest hurdle. It's our biggest hurdle. The last Presidents Cup, we had players that represented eight different uh, regions of the world, and when you start to meld together all those languages and cultures, uh, and 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 try to understand that, it is a, it's a huge aspect of us coming together as a team. And I think it's something that we weren't always very good at. But uh, in the last few cups, we've started to get better at it and started to understand ways that we, that we really can get better at it. And I thought Ernie did a magnificent job 
down in Australia managing all of that. Um, and, uh, and I've just tried to carry on from there. And also hear from the players, understand, understand their thoughts and feelings. And, and, and really, you've got to take the time and effort to understand the different cultures and be able to take yourself out of your comfort zone to be able to get in there and really learn some of these things so that all of these players can get to that week and, um, you know, just fall into their natural routines, be themselves and, and play. So, yeah, that's, it's for sure our biggest hurdle, something that we focus a lot on. Yeah, what, what are some things that, uh, that Ernie did differently that you're continuing to do and maybe building on? Well, I can't tell you all of our secrets. I know. You know, I got to <laughs> ask, though. <laughs> it was a good try. Uh, the first thing he did that, that I thought was really impactful was, you know, for the longest time, we just used to play under some kind of flag that the PGA Tour had made up. It was a blue flag with a bunch of gold diamonds. I remember that. from. It, it, it represented, or it looked kind of like a European flag, but the stars were just in a different place. Never really meant anything to us. None of us really even knew where it came from. And Ernie decided that we had to find something that we knew was ours. And so he designed a logo for us uh, that has particular meaning to it. And he explained that to us more than a year ahead of the tournament and explained how it was designed and, and, and what it means. And the players really bought into that. That was one thing that I thought was really cool. We finally had something that, that was ours. You know, all these players that are coming together from different parts of the globe, but now we have one logo, one flag that we can play under for that week. Uh, and that was, that was a bit more impactful than maybe some people realize. Ernie made those comments after about, about doing things our way. Can you shed any light? I've, you know, obviously everybody speculated on it. Is it, is it more of just having a little bit more autonomy as a, as a team than, you know, everything being tied together? What, you know, can you shed any light on what those comments meant? Well, look with the Ryder cup, it, it turns into a real natural rivalry because they have the PGA of America that looks after the U S team. And then you have the European tour and um, the British PGA, I believe it is, who have co-ownership of that team. Or, and, and so that's how they run things. They don't share stuff with each other. They do their own thing. They're their own entity. And with the President's Cup, that is obviously different. And so that's what Ernie was referencing is, hey, how can we take control of our own team, make all the decisions that revolve around our own team so that we can do things the way we want to do it. That's, uh, that's good. That's, that's great news for internationals. You know, you want to, you want to be different. I I'm kind of, I kind of lean more towards rooting for the uh, opposition of America and in, in these, because I always like rooting for underdogs and I genuinely, uh, I enjoy a lot of the, a lot of the international players. So, um, uh, with, uh, with that, you know, everybody obviously zeroes in on your, you're making picks obviously of captain's picks and you're, you know, picking who's going out during the week, 
and you're you know strategizing that but like it seems like your job as the captain is very busy outside of that like what are you doing now and in the weeks leading up to the president's cup so what we're doing now is uh just making sure all the bits and bobs are taken care of for these guys uh, we've gone and done the site visits we've checked out the hotel seems like uh, they shut down charlotte for you guys you know <laughs> I think they heard Davis was coming into town. I mean, he's <laughs> he's the North Carolina boy. So I was just riding on his coattails. It was pretty fun. Riding carts down the street, you know? Yeah. So we had, we had a good few days. Uh, uh, spent a lot of time together. He's just a fantastic human being, Davis Love. I've always been a huge fan of his. Uh, but yeah, got to see the golf course, understand exactly where the team rooms uh, and uh, cabins are going to be hotel, how all of that's going to work with transportation. And, you know, now we're just in a process of making sure, you know, how, how do you, how do you want the uniforms to look? Do you, do you want, do you want stripes? Do you not want stripes? Do you want checks? Do you want, how big do you want the logos to be? Where do you want the logos to be? Uh, just different things like that. You know, if you want any advice, I'm available. <laughs> you're available to give me are you like a fashionista no no <laughs> i'm colorblind so you know i'm very useless in that department but yeah, uh so I, want, I want no advice from you then i'm, how, a, do, I'm a, how do you do the food my wife with all the people all the different do you try and like you know give people different foods of the you know foods of the team so you know you have uh japanese food one night korean food one night you know uh, you know, you could have some. Uh, what's the stuff that Aussies eat? The um... shrimp on the barbie. <laughs> <laughs> it's the um, it's like the spread or something. I can't. Marmite, uh... marmite. Yes, Vegemite is what Vegemite, Vegemite. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, we have that in South Africa as well. The Aussies and the South Africans uh, eat actually very similar food, so we don't have any problems there. But yeah, you got to see what our food buffet line looks like, man. It's 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 uh it's a lot of work and preparation, making sure that everybody is taken care of and that they are all getting the food that they want and that they like to eat. It's uh, it's something that is extremely important as you start to understand your personnel and the cultures and and the stuff that they they like to do and how they want to prep. So it's it's a huge part of it, making sure that all of that is taken care of. How how you want the the team cabins to look how you want the team rooms at the hotel to look there's there's a, a a few more moving parts than probably what i even realized going into this yeah i i imagine so uh you know to ta- put a bow on this obviously uh, everybody knows the big names who are uh, a few you know uh players that maybe american fans haven't heard of necessarily that you've got your eye on that you know may not be on this president's cup team but could be on on future ones well we saw a guy win last week in bermuda lucas herbert he's up and coming for sure i uh, wouldn't be surprised if he makes his way onto this team he's had three big wins here in the last 12 months or so higo that we saw win on the pga tour last year this kid Nienaber, I'm really high on him. I mean, to a certain extent, like a guy like Nienaber is interesting for a team format because he's got such a a dominant skill that that you know with his length, you know, that mm-hmm. you could see him 
being an asset in some way, right? Like it's not necessarily who's who's the best overall player, you know, you could see where certain players' skills could lend themselves well to different formats and different pairings, right? Yeah, 100%. And it's un- it's understanding how you can match that person to the golf course and, and what's going to be asked of the player at that golf course. Um, you know, big hitters, hitters have generally done well at Quail Hollow. I don't anticipate too much rough. That seems to be uh, the way the American teams have wanted to set their venues up. There's no, pretty much no rough out there. So there's going to be space to give it a rip. And also, for me, as, as a golf fan and somebody who who is interested in this kind of stuff. I, I'd love to see him at some point paired up against Bryson and just see, you know, how does Bryson react when he's got a guy that's out there hitting it further than him? What, what's he going to do? How is this going to end up over the course of a nine hole stretch? You know, are these two just going to be bombing at 400 yards out there? What What's going to happen? Particularly with the way the, uh, the routing is going to be changed for the President's Cup. Really, from the seventh hole, which is the uh, the par five, and you've got the drivable eight, and then you switch over, mm-hmm. you're going to have a couple par fives and drivable par fours all in and amongst that green mile. There, so there's going to be a lot of opportunity to really play aggressive. And so, will a player like that that has power to burn is that guy going to be an advantage? It's more than likely that he is. And so, these are the kinds of things that you you try to weigh up. Uh, as well as for me, I'm going to have eight qualifiers and uh, and then four picks. So, you know, how how do you make those four picks to where they complement the other eight and are then able to to really slide in well from a alternate shot and a and a four ball setup? So, you know, these are the reasons why you have people much smarter than me running the numbers and making sure that everything checks out. Uh, Gut feel is important, but at the end of the day, a lot of times, uh, you know, you need a little evidence behind that as well. So we'll be taking all of that into account. It's I would say that in a way, the international, your player pool has, you know, a little bit more characteristics towards the U.S. Like you guys, you have a lot of power players. So it's interesting because, like, you know, you say short, rough, like, and they, they, you know, I think that's the U.S.'s best trait, you know, outside of having a very talented team top to bottom, you know, in depth. But, like, they, they're they a powerful team. And we saw it at Whistling Straits. They they really took it to the Americans on the par fives and the short par four, or the Europeans mm-hmm. on the par fives and the short par fours. But then you look at some a lot of the, you know, up-and-coming international players and then the long-time ter- international players – they're they're long players. They've got Adam Scott and Louie who who don't hit it short, but then a lot of the younger guys are long hitters like uh, you know, perfect example would be like Mito Pereira or or, ne- mm-hmm. or Neiman or Sung J M. Yeah, absolutely. I don't I don't think even Herbert, he cracks it out there. Fratelli's picked up a, a ton of distance. Uh he right now is in fifteenth spot. Uh Vegas, he's in eleventh right now. He hits at a mile. Mito, like you said. And Abe, Abe's the tidiest player in the world. Yeah, he's he's fantastic, man. I, I'm such a huge fan of his. He plays with such a, a lovable chip on his shoulder. It's, it's so much fun to watch. You can see, like, every time he goes out there, it's almost like he feels like he's got something to prove. 
And everything about his demeanor and the way he dresses and the way he conducts himself and the attitude with which he plays, he's uh, he's a huge part of our team moving forward. He's extremely popular in the in the team room with all of the guys. And I think now that he's got one of these President's Cups under his belt, he's just going to get more and more important to us down the road, particularly with, I mean, how well the guy's playing. He's becoming one of the best players in the world. So, but yeah, you look at our team, the way it's starting to stack up, it's very young, just like the U.S. team. M, Smith, Louis, you know, Louis and Adam are the two old guys. Abe is in his 20s. Adeki's still in his 20s. Van Royen is young. Connors, uh, Mito, Lucas, Siwoo Kim is still in his 20s. So, yeah, we're, we're going to be a young team, just, just like last time when we were the youngest team in President's Cup history. We had seven rookies. Uh, so yeah, you got guys like Neiman that uh, that on the outside looking in right now. Obviously, we have a long way to go. Yeah, you know, Abe answers uh, ascension into like, you know, it, it, people would never guess it. The guy's a top twenty player, but his ascension up there's been one of the more under undercovered uh, aspects of pro golf for the last couple of years. Because he, you know, it's just amazing how he's turned himself into you know one of the best players, one of the most consistent players in the world too. Yeah, yeah, you're right. He, he was flying under the radar, really, until that President's Cup, yeah. I think, in 2019. He really did play great. He got beat out there by Tiger in the singles. He played good, though. That that was a great match. Yeah, he still, he, you're right, he did play well. And he was really, I know the score says three and two, but he was, he was one down after, because I was walking with him, he was one down after 13, and then Tiger made a couple of birdies there to close him out in the end. But uh, he held him close for a little while and, and played great during the week. I think that week gave him a lot of confidence to, to kick on from there. Did you feel like you had a big home course advantage at Royal Melbourne? And, you know, with, with the familiarity of Quail Hollow, do you feel like there isn't as much of a home course advantage this year around for the U.S.? Yeah, I agree with both of those. I think we felt like we had a home course advantage. Uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, Ernie had played so much there over the years, uh, along with Adam Scott, that those guys were really able to shepherd these youngsters, the seven rookies, around that golf course in the practice rounds and really show them all the areas that you can use to your advantage and the little humps and bumps that you can use to, to feed the ball back toward the hole. So, okay, you can go at the flag and like a bit of a crazy play, you're going to have to pull off a miraculous shot to get it close. And if you just miss it, you're screwed, basically. Or you can play, you know, 35 feet out to the right and you can use this bank to feed it to 25 feet and give yourself a putt. And it took us a few days to, to get that into these guys' brains, particularly a player like Sungjae. I'm one of the most aggressive players I've ever seen play. The guy... Because he hits the ball so well and so accurately, he cannot understand why he would never aim at the flag. Like for him, it's like, I'm going to hit it there. What am I aiming away for it, uh, from it for? And so, you know, to spend a little extra time with him, those guys really trusted Ernie with all of that. And that's why I think Ernie was the right captain at the right time because he, he has such a great presence about him and is such a legend that those, those youngsters that were on the team, they just, they like hung on every word. And so it worked out perfectly. And so we felt, yeah, we felt like we had a little bit of an advantage, maybe 
the majority of the US team had, had not seen that course before and were dealing with with jet lag on top of that. It, it seemed like it seemed like that advantage was really uh, you had a, like a real stark advantage and it kind of was like it it dwindled every every passing round of that president's cup which was i honestly i think maybe in the last two years one of the three or four most enjoyable tournaments to watch the and you know like god that was an amazing tournament but it seemed it like so every, enjoyable for us on sunday but I, i'm glad you, you enjoyed what? it I was going to ask, like, you know, obviously internationals have won. Is it like kind of like one of those, like, it sucks we lost, but, it, you know, a momentum builder, even though they it was a loss? Yeah, there's no doubt it was a momentum builder. We feel like we we have a, a, a platform of which to try and at least build onto now. And we, you know, we have a structure and a plan that we believe in. And so, yeah, I think that was huge for us. It was it was it was brutally difficult to accept that sunday afternoon uh and all credit to the americans the way they played and the way they fought and the way they pulled through in the end and who knows maybe that was even the catalyst for that golf that we saw at whistling straits i mean those guys realized exactly how strong they are and how tough they are in team competition if they can all pull it together at the same time and they did on that sunday and they did at the Ryder cup and they i mean they're damn good they're damn good we got a huge mountain to climb but uh imagine imagine having the opportunity to to try and beat the best team in the world i mean that's what all of us dream of that's yeah. what all of us dream of is to have that shot and quail hollow is is going to be a great venue i've always been a fan of the golf course the events that we've played there on the tour are always so well supported by the fans and just hearing the numbers of ticket sales and 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 corporate involvement already it is going to be massive right time of year too there like it's not yeah. at least, it's not like a august pga in, yeah. in charlotte it's you know having it in september will be a lot better it's going to be massive it's going to be something that players i think will remember Kind of like, uh, it, very hard to compare to the Ryder Cup that's been around for so long. And, and it's, it's, uh, it really transcends our sport, the Ryder Cup. And people who aren't golf fans will still watch some of that. But, uh, you know, you think back to the Ryder Cup in Paris and that first tee and that, that whole vibe and atmosphere it was something that was so special for our sport. And I think that... Uh, Quail Hollow has the potential to be able to deliver something like that. Now, it'll be up to us to to try and match the Americans from a, a golf standpoint, but I think the atmosphere and the crowd support is going to be awesome. I got, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this. I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I, I, I got to ask you a couple quick questions while, while we got here. Do you have a favorite Ernie Els story that you can share on the pod? Oh. You know, he's my favorite player. <laughs> No, Lee Westwood's your favorite. West, well, Westy, Ernie's not really active anymore. You know, <laughs> Ernie. I was a, I was a, always an Ernie guy growing up. I loved Westy and Ernie. Those were my two guys. Yeah, I, look, I, Ernie, I've known since uh, since I was seven years old, and he came to play. First time I met him, first time I saw him. Now, go back to the beginning of our conversation when I told you that Ernie is our Tiger Woods, right? So when Ernie was um, 
in his late teens, he was already known all over the country to be like this stud golfer. And, you know, the next, the next Gary player coming along behind, um, you know, all the other guys that were playing in South Africa at the time, Nick Prices, McNulty, Tony Johnson, David Frost, Fulton Allen, all those guys. And here was coming Ernie now, really possibly going to catch these guys and be better than them. And he was playing an amateur tournament at my home course. And I was just spellbound by this guy. The first time I saw him, he was tall and skinny, and he had this massive swing and wide arc. And I just followed him around for four days. For four days, I was never more than five yards from this guy. So there was, you know, it's an amateur tournament. So there's no ropes. There's no, and I was just like a little shadow. And so I've known him ever since then. And fortunately enough, he humored me throughout my early years and would always be nice to me and talk to me. And then when I started playing amateur golf and getting into the South African Opens and stuff like that, when I was 15, 16 years old, he'd play practice rounds or I would come over to the U.S., play in AJGA events, and he would let me stay with him uh, at his house. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that relationship has always been pretty tight like that, something that I'm extremely thankful for. So, yeah, we go back a long way and have done a lot of crazy things together <laughs> that, I, I, you know, that I, 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 I won't tell those kinds of stories <laughs> in this setting. But uh, he is a great friend of mine, somebody that I love, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very appreciative of being, he's been a huge asset to, to me over the years. Early Ernie, like I, I, there's a, somebody posted on Twitter years ago. I think it was David Poulton. Have you, you know, the guy that posts all the yep. old swings yep. and it was like this loop of early, early Ernie, just one swing. And I mean, the amount of speed that that man generated from like his waist to the ball you know, on the downswing is just it, it, unbelievable. Yeah. You know, and when he was younger playing in South Africa, he, he had like this, like I said, always been really tall, but he was skinny and he, he had a bit more of a, uh, like a Dustin Johnson build, but a couple inches taller. And then he would have this spiky white hair that was, it was like kind of, it had a little bit of Billy Idol in it almost. <laughs> and, it, the guy was just like, yeah, I'd never seen anything like him. You know, he had this massive arc and would he 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 able to generate so much power with looking like he was not even trying. That's the thing. It, it seems like all the speed is at the very bottom of the swing. Mm. It's just great. It, I mean, well, he's a huge fan of Sam Sneed, and one of the things that Sneed said that Ernie always loved was swing easy and hit hard and that's one of the things that he always said to me over the years now i couldn't do that you know i'm this little guy uh and grew up in very windy conditions and so my swing was much more fast paced and uh, more about hitting down on it to compress it to to get it out there so you know our swings are totally different but those are the things that he, he would sort of little things that he would always say to me, swing easy, hit hard. The way he's able to kind of whittle things down to be able to get the best out of himself and simplify things, he's, he, he's an amazing competitor. And probably 
uh, a little harder on himself than what people realize. Really wants to win and can be tough on himself, but has the ability to to make it not seem like that. It seems like you know, like having having followed his career my whole life, and just you know, you when you read in between the tea leaves, like you could tell that coming up second a lot to maybe probably the greatest golfer. I mean, I I say greatest golfer. I don't want any of the Nicholas fans barking at me, but <laughs> coming up second to the greatest golfer ever a bunch of times and having him pull rabbits out of the hat like you could tell war on him yeah that's probably right it must it must have been really tough for him because he knew that there was nobody else in that particular period that could really hang in there but here he's got to run into this this guy by the name of tiger woods it was just so tough to beat at that time you know one of my favorites was always to watch that tournament when they played at kapalua and they were going back and forth just making eagles and birdies and putts and eventually on like the third playoff hole you know, Tiger makes that huge putt down the hill there on the first hole. And the, you, when the camera zooms in, the ball's just like bouncing all <laughs> over the place. It's like, how on earth does this guy make this putt? But there they were going back and forth at it. And think back to that President's Cup in 03 as well. Yeah, that's how I was playing thinking about it. Playing into the too. dark. I mean, it, gosh, that guy, that guy was so, he was, was, he still is so damn good. But he was so freaking good in his prime, man. And actually this morning I watched, um, something on on social media, and they had Adam Scott saying the five best players he's ever played with, and yeah, he had he had Ernie at number two and Tiger at number one. I still argue Ernie over Phil in terms of second best player of the generation because Ernie at his peak was so freaking good, and I think that's I think I take I would say your five best years over your peak is your peak and the consistency and what he did across the world was unbelievable oh i mean it's a tough one it's a tough one when you look at so here's the way i'll explain it you look at i mean mickelson what what are we on 45 pga tour wins yeah i know six majors (laughs) the six majors really really ernie's got four majors and and 19 pga tour wins but you know also tying into something we were talking about earlier Ernie flew around the world and competed a lot and won I don't even know how many times we could probably check it on Wikipedia how many times if I remember correctly exactly now if Ernie had just focused on the US and he didn't go to Asia and he didn't go to South Africa and Australia and play you know how many PGA Tour events would he have won nobody will ever know but I would like to think that if he dedicated his whole life to living here in the U.S. and competing on the PGA Tour week after week, it would probably be double than what he has. Yeah. And so that's, that's where it, it gets a little tricky to weigh up these players. Although, you know, Mickelson is up there, man. 45 PGA Tour wins playing in Tiger's time. Just wrap your mind around that. The Kiowa, the the Kiowa win was his was his opus, you know that that whole thing. I mean, I he game Brooks, you know, he took like to do that when he had no form coming in, no form of going out of it. I mean, that win is going to be it, it was an amazing win to watch. Yeah, but it goes to show with guys like that, and you can you can throw Tiger in twenty nineteen at Augusta in the same category from a standpoint when, when, when athletes are that good and you just give them a sniff of it with nine to play, 
it's like riding a bike for these guys, man. They know exactly what needs to happen at what time. They need. They know where to stand to make sure that you can feel their presence. They know how to work the crowd. They know how to stay out of trouble and just put themselves in there to where you know. Okay, maybe this other guy's going to fall over, and I'm going to win this thing. And but but Mickelson, you know, I was I was calling the golf that week for CBS, and I'm 15 was my hole, and he steps up there and just laces this tee shot further than anybody had yeah. hit it all day, and then did it again on 16. And I was like, wow, I mean, that is that's pretty impressive to stand up. The guy's in his late 40s. Uh, well, well, oh, wait, no, 50s. Was he, 50? he was 50. He was 50. Yeah. Was he 50 or 51 at the time? I think he was 51. He was 51. Yeah. And he stands up there and he hits the two longest tee shots of the day on those holes. Sheesh, that is, that's so impressive. One of the, one of the coolest moments I thought of that tournament, I, I, I was following Brooks and him and on the 12th hole, the, the par five, 12, or is that 11? 12 or 11 par five um he was hitting over in the into the book into the dunes and brooks hit it right down the middle and he said to brooks that he was gonna have to get a drop because somebody picked up his ball he said to brooks right away hey if you want to hit go for it and brooks didn't said no no go ahead and meanwhile you know you could tell brooks was just a little irritated in general and then phil was playing slow the whole day and he just goes and he's and he's like yucking it up with all the fans and the fans are eating it up. Everybody's laughing. There's no rules official around. So of course it's five minutes till one gets over. You know, the fans are laughing and you can tell Brooks is getting just irritated. And Brooks, well, is, like I said, that, those guys, they, they know all the little tricks. Exactly. Man. He got gamed by, they by know. Phil. Like he, because then, then Brooks yelled over like Brooke or Phil, Phil, I'm going to hit. And Phil, didn't hear him <laughs> whether he heard him or not he, i mean i was kind of in the same area i heard brooks yelling but uh but it was just like a, it was just you just you watched it happen and then brooks made a bogey he had a horrible layup shot right after phil hit it out i think phil made birdie and there was a two-shot swing and that was that was where you know that lead came from and it was just unbelievable to watch it. And it was like, God, you know, in this huge moment, Phil just took down arguably the best major championship player here. Yeah. And he just, he like, he kind of gamed him. Yeah. He was definitely going deep into the tool bag there to, to, to use everything he could. I, I thought the whole week was so awesome. The fans were great. It was almost like a little bit of a, okay, we're back now yeah. after the whole COVID thing, just to have it so packed out. I remember running into you guys down there. It was a great, great vibe. Really cool, interesting golf course that is one of the most visually intimidating courses that I've ever played. For me, one of the coolest moments was on 17 on Sunday when the whole week he's been going regular grip. And then all of a sudden he's got like a two and a half footer and he goes to the claw and you're like, what on earth is going on here? <laughs> and then, you know, and somebody asks him afterwards about it and he's like, well, the ball was sitting in a depression. And when I used the claw, I launched it a little higher and I knew it would come out. And I'm like, dude, come on. I mean, it's just, that's Phil in a nutshell. He's, he's just so good at 
understanding the moment and knowing what the right thing to do and say is he's he's um he's a golf genius for me for me he's top for me he's top 10 ever he really is he really is i mean that's the thing it's like the just the the experience level to know like those little things i thought that's that's why i thought the brilliance of of kiowa was with the wind and the design of it was it, it you know power was still really valuable and important but mm. Having, having you, you needed to know how to keep spin off the ball uh, in that heavy wind that was out there that week. You needed to know like what Pete Dye was trying to bait you into, and when to put, when to push the gas pedal down and play a little bit more aggressive. When to lay back and and be, you know, and and I just thought that was such a great venue because of you know it's the it had the elements that we always hope that British Opens have or mm. Open Championships have, where that wind becomes that and and you know sitting on that 17th hole watching shots on those days where the wind was heavy was unbelievable you know watching those guys hit hit the that 240 shot into the wind um it, it that that tournament would be one of my favorite ones that i've i've seen yeah they've had two they've had two good majors there mm-hmm. yeah with with mcelroy winning as well they've uh they've had a couple good ones hey we're gonna save uh talking about the masters for another time because right. you know everybody asks you about that probably anyways, but you know yeah no it sounds good <laughs> yeah but thanks so much for the time and uh, we're we're looking forward to the Presidents Cup this year yeah I hope so yeah I hope so uh, you know we're we're looking forward to it too yeah yeah so we'll see you uh, hopefully at a, at a tournament this spring and um, thanks for coming on awesome thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode was edited by the great Meg Atkins. Thank you, Meg. And uh, as a quick reminder, Black Friday's coming up, Cyber Monday, all that jazz. If you're looking for a great gift, we will have a fully stocked Fried Egg Pro Shop. Uh, Those should be going up in the coming week or so, all this new merchandise that... uh, you know, it'll, uh, it'll make your uh, fellow fried egg fans really jealous if you got the latest gear, or you can dress up your office and such with a print. We will be doing a sale. Um, the best way to know about the sale is to subscribe to the Fried Egg newsletter. That will have all the details, all social, social media. So look for uh, a lot of stuff for Black Friday. That's a great way to support us and... Uh, Also, update your wardrobe or your walls. Thank you guys again for listening to the Fried Egg Podcast and the support throughout the year. And uh, we'll talk to you soon.